We're going to be in Genesis chapter 5. You can open up there. A dynamic chapter, if you've read it. Jesus, thanks for gathering your people. Thanks for giving us the community of the saints. Thank you for reminding us weekly that you have a plan, that you are in control, and that we know the end, that we serve a king who defeated death and sin and the law. And we who have been adopted by this king will enter into a kingdom where there is no night, where there are no tears, where there is no disease. And that's what we look forward to. So may we be a people of both hope and thankfulness. May we realize that the course of this world, while it looks tangled and messy from our viewpoint, is weaving together your story from eternity's viewpoint. And may we get on board with that view, I pray, even tonight. And I ask this in your name. Amen. So probably most of you are familiar with Philip Zimbardi. He's the guy, Zimbardo? Zimbardo. Zimbardi. Well, whoever it is, he knows who he is. He did these experiments in Stanford. They're called the prison experiments. You can Google them. And he took, back in the 1970s, and this is Stanford. Is Stanford the most probably eminent university on the West Coast? I would say so. It's probably number one. It's always top 10 in the nation. Like you're talking premier, premier university. It's not Oregon State, which is a great university. Oregon, you know, those are, those are great state universities. Stanford's different. So you get very high-level people, students. So he grabs just randomly these students, and they did this experiment where they make half of the students that he grabbed into prisoners and the other half into guards. And it's supposed to last for seven days, right? This seven-day experiment where you have guards and prisoners, just random students. That's all they were. Hey, we need you for a week. Try this out. They just shut it down early because people begin to act out their parts, and the guards became like uh, Guantanamo Bay or something. Started torture and waterboarding and super like me. And they're not, even, they're not even real guards. And the, the results of that experiment were this. It's amazing what a person is capable of under the right circumstances. Given the right ingredients, what would a person do? It's actually quite sobering. To really ask yourself, like, what am I capable of doing? It put in the right pressure, put under the right circumstances, what am I capable of doing? Have you ever just lost it? Something happens and you've just lost it. And later on, you're like, man, what was that about? Anybody? Or am I all alone here? <laughs> right? Well, that, that's like this. Like, what I've noticed with, with kids, I have five of my own, is um, kids will lose it like that. And the only reason why parents are not dead is because kids aren't that strong, right? Like they get mad and they'll just like come after you, right? And I've always wondered like, 
where did they learn that behavior? Like, what in the world? They didn't learn it from Charity and I. Like, if Charity gets the last piece of chocolate, I'm not like, ah, I'm going to bite you. Ah! But why do they do that? Like, where do they get that from? Like, there is something in us that's super bent. And in the right circumstances, look out. All right? So that's where we're headed. Chapter five. I'm going to kind of skip across the waters on this one. Verse one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Notice how many times that has been repeated, the Imago Dei. Male and female, notice gender is repeated all the time. He created them. God does not do that with the animals. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth, all the image stuff. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Then Seth, verse 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. He had a son named Enosh, verse 11. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. He has a son named Kenan, verse 14. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. He has a son named Mahalalel. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel, the first Hawaiian, were 895 years, and he died. All right, he has a son named Jared, verse 20. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. He had a son named Enoch, verse 23. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Hmm. He has a son named Methuselah, verse 27. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Then when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Just a side note. This is part of my theology of, uh, I call it judo theology. God takes the bad and out of it brings something good. So the cursed ground now creates Noah. But verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech, this is a different Lamech. This is, you have Lamech, who is a son of Cain, the line of Cain, chapter four. This is a Lamech who is in the line of Seth. Just a note. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. Interesting number. And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, a couple of notes on this. Number one, they live a long time, don't they? Like really, really long. Think about this for just a second. Imagine if Einstein had an extra 600 years. What would he have done? What would he be doing, we should say? He'd be still alive. We'd be in flying cars and taking trips to Mars probably, right? 
Like it would be amazing. Imagine if Beethoven had an extra 500 years. He'd still be around. What kind of music would he be producing right now? Certainly wouldn't be country music. <laughs> I mean, just uh, like these geniuses, if you gave them more time, what does the world look like? I think Adam probably had the greatest mind ever. Untainted, unbroken, like what has happened over the course of generation after generation after generation, degeneration. But Adam probably had a brilliant, incredible mind. I don't think he hung around hunting and gathering. Like he must've been brilliant. Think about just for a second, what kind of a mom and dad you would be if you had a lot of extra time? They're having kids at 130, right? What kind of parents would they be? I've told my wife that she should write a book. We have, now we've been parents for 16 years. We have five kids of our own. Um, and I've told her, you need to write a book, how to raise your first like your fifth. Because you just get better. Naturally, you become a better parent over the course of time. Just all this stuff happens. Like my daughter, Carissa, she's my first. When we had her, I remember we did not check her into the nursery at church until I think she was six years old. I was like, no. Then I remember Gabrielle was born. The first Sunday we were back, she's probably 11 days old. We're like, here you go. Like, are you sure? Yeah, she's fine. What does she need? Nothing. Like Carissa, we brought like the Torah. Here's what she needs. Um, if she does this, do, you know, and with Gabrielle, now she'll be fine. Well, she's trying to just put her in the corner. She'll stop. Don't worry about it. Right? You just, you casual out. Like it becomes very, very different. I just think what would have happened with this brilliant kind of thing living this long. Like, it would have been amazing, I think. I think civilization would be something. I think pre-flood civilization was brilliant. Just brilliant. I look at how grandparents take care of kids, how different, how nurturing it is, how kind it is, how not, not so stressed out it is. Like, that's, that's what the way parents would have been. Like, it would have been a really interesting time for a while. So you've got this length of days. I think there was a brilliant civilization that was beginning to emerge. And you kind of see the hints of that at the end of chapter four. Number two, notice the death march. So I read over and over, this guy lived and what happened to him? He died. There are 10 generations recorded from Adam to Noah. We'll get 10 more generations from Noah to Abraham. Now I think that's purposeful. Does that mean that these are direct descendants? The Hebrew does not have a word for grandson. So the same word would be used for son, grandson, great-grandson. It's just descendant. So it's possible that they're direct descendants, but it's also possible that there's some people in there that the Bible just doesn't record. We're going to have 10 generations from, no, from Adam to Noah and then 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. People debate that. It doesn't matter to me. The Hebrew just doesn't have a word for it. It's, you, you, the, the way they looked at family was so different than us. We're like, well, this is my family and those are grandkids. They're not. It's all my family. All, they all belong to me. Whether they're a grandkid or a great-grandkid, didn't matter back then. So you, you have this, this death march. They die, they die, they die, they die, they die. But one guy doesn't, right? Enoch. So this, this pattern is interrupted. And whenever that happens in the Bible, you're supposed to be like, oh, hold on a second. This is really important. Because it's establishing this pattern. You're like, okay, you're expecting something and it's unexpected. So Enoch, it says something to us right here. It's saying, listen, death does not have to win. 
There is a way out. Death does not have to be the end. Take hope. Take hope, slaves, 3,500 years ago. Take hope, Edgewater, today. Death does not have to be the end. Why does Enoch escape? It just tells us he walked with God and he was not. That's it. We're going to see that this becomes super important. So if you go back just a couple chapters to chapter three, right after Adam and Eve sinned, it says that they heard God, what? Walking in the cool of the evening. And most people believe it was God coming to take his evening walk with Adam and Eve. That they were supposed to be walking with God, but instead they had sinned and were hiding from God. Now you got this guy named Enoch who seems to figure it out. He walks with God, doesn't die. He's taken. Then we'll move forward to Noah, chapter six, verse nine. And it says that he has spared the flood. Why? Because he was righteous and blameless and he walked with God. So we're gonna see more and more that there's something about this walking with God. It's a theme that this is what God's looking for. He's looking for people that are gonna walk with him. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, you can skip forward if you want to Hebrews 11, where it picks up Enoch. And it says this about Enoch, that he pleased God. How did he please God? Well, right after that, it says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You have to believe that God is and that he's a reward of those. So the idea about Enoch is this. He walked with God and he believed something about God. What did he believe about God? Here's what I believe. Ever been misrepresented? Like somebody that you are trying to be friends with or someone that you're getting to know and they misrepresent you to somebody else? How does that make you feel? You don't want to walk with them anymore. Get away from me. You know, you can't do that to my character. You can't talk about me that way. Right? So God wants people that believe something about him. So he's now trying to take these, these slaves, these ex-slaves that are now being set free. I want you to know something about me and I want you to believe something about me and you're gonna walk with me for 40 years and I want you to start understanding who I am, that I'm good, that I'm generous, that I'm in control, that I have a plan, that I can handle this, that I will take care of my kids and that I'm gonna rid the world of evil. That's what it means, I think, to walk with God. Believe these things about me. Believe me, believe who I am. And that's pleasing to God. And notice, finally, it's a walk, not a sprint. It doesn't say he ran with God. Walk is slow. It's a process. I have a quote by Eugene Peterson written down. And it's, Christianity is this, it's a long obedience in the same direction. We want these quick fixes and and we're much more that way and we're becoming much more that way with our culture. That is not Christianity. It is not a quick fix. Christianity is a long obedience in the same direction. I add one word into that. I say it's a long and beautiful obedience in the same direction. So he walks with God. And here's something interesting to think about. Yes, they live long lives, but you know what? We'll live longer. You and I are gonna live longer. This is, just, this is just chapter one. That's all this life is. We put so much stock in it and so much effort into it, but the Bible's just like, it's chapter one. You will live longer. A day with the Lord is as, or a thousand years to the Lord is as a day. This is nothing, nothing at 
all. We will live longer. And chapter five, really its purpose is moving us into, hey, look at Enoch. There's this death that's running, but there is hope. And here's why. There's this guy named Noah. It introduces us to Noah. And here's what Lamech, the good Lamech, it's like redeeming his name. Here's what Lamech does that's very fascinating. He names Noah comfort or rest. And he prophesies over Noah saying this, out of the ground, it's verse 29, that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest or comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I love that. Here's a dad looking at his son, newborn son, and he blesses, prophesies over his son. This is what he's gonna be. And he ends up being that. I think that's awesome. If your son lives up to the words you speak to him, dads, what will your son be? Will it be a comfort? Will he be a rest? Or will it be a little jerk or runt? Or come on, what will your son be? The words that we speak, the Bible says, they're, they're, they're life and death. Proverbs 18, and you're going to eat the fruit of them. Be so careful about how you're speaking to your children, moms and dad. This dad does it right, and Noah moves into something that's beautiful and brilliant. So that's chapter five. Chapter six, very interesting. Verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So if you noticed, the majority of the people in chapter five were male, right? You've got this, this there are, it says, yeah, they had sons and daughters, but the named people are men. Now chapter six does this switch. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, <laughs> Numbers 13. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who are of old, the men of renown, or literally the men of the name. Huh. I have this in my own brain, these four verses titled human depravity. You've got this kind of human depravity now. And when, and when people read these four verses, there's a lot of kind of freaking out about them. Like, What in the world is this? Like, who are the sons of God? What is a Nephilim? Who are these mighty men of renown or of the name? And what does God do in verse three? What does that mean? My flesh shall not abide in man forever. He's flesh, my spirit rather, his days. What is this? It is probably one of the most difficult, enigmatic, nutty, conspiracy theory texts in the entire Old Testament. 
and I will not solve it for you tonight. So chapter seven, then Yahweh said to Noah, (laughs) I'll take my stab at it, but that's all it is. All right. So who are the sons of God? The oldest commentary we have is actually a translation. It's called the Septuagint. So if you see in your reading LXX, that's the way of saying this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures done 150 years before Jesus, all right? So really what it provides for us is a way of saying, oh, this is the way they viewed those words, difficult words. The Septuagint translates the sons of God as angels and the Nephilim as giants. So their oldest kind of looking back, what were the Hebrew scholars thinking about these texts? They would say, well, the sons of God are angels and these Nephilim creatures are giants. Second Peter chapter two, God's word. Peter appears to refer to this crew also as angels. If you know your history, the dominant Christian view from AD 32 all the way up until the 1600s was they were angels. It was the Reformation along with the Enlightenment that changed that and there began to be, well, maybe it's something else. But throughout Christian history, the dominant view has been they're angels. The term is benai a Elohim, right? Elohim is the term for God. Ben means son, son of, right? Sons of God. That's just literally what it is. It's twice here. It's three times in the book of Job. Job chapter one, Job chapter two, Job chapter 38. In those texts, uh, there's very few that would argue, especially chapter 38, that it's not angels. Some will argue chapter one could be something else. Maybe it's some kings or something, but chapter 38, no, that's definitely an angel, right? So what are the choices? I'll give you five. There's probably more. Here's the five choices I've seen. Number one, it's aliens. This is fringe. It's way over here. And it's, you know, like some bad B movie from the 1960s or 50s. Like just, oh my goodness, that's a terrible movie, right? So most people, that's very fringe, but there are some people that still believe that. Um, Number two, probably closer, fallen angels. These fallen angels come and have relationships with women. There's, There's, okay, well, Jesus says, you know, angels don't procreate, but Jesus never says they can't. They don't because they're eternal. There's no need to reproduce like we do because we're dying. So, okay, you can get, get away from that. And then the mighty men that they produce, in verse of four, it's the Hebrew word, giborim. It's used a number of times. And what some people say is this, okay, you have these angels having relationships with women. They produce this, this creature, giborim, and then the flood kills them And when the flood kills the body, what comes out of the body is a spirit that's something else. It's what we would call a demon today. The demons were produced when the body of the Gaborim were killed in the flood. And so now demons, unlike an angel, angels can have bodies, right? When you see angels, they have bodies. They don't need a body. Demons, though, are these spirits that have been uh, released from a body, and now they're always looking for a body to take up. So that's number two. You know, um, do whatever you want with that. Number three, 
<laughs> I'm just telling you what's out there. The line of Seth. So here's the idea is what you see in chapter four is the line of Cain. And then chapter five is the line of Seth. And then in verse one, what begins to happen is in verse two, the sons of God, they say those are the line of Seth, begins to marry into the line of Cain. So the problem here is unhealthy marriages that leads to the flood. If that's what leads to the flood, we are in great trouble. Build an ark right now. Start building an ark. Because if it's unhealthy marriages, that guy's like, that's it, I'm done. Oh my goodness. <laughs> We're doomed, right? I think personally, it is super hard to make that case that it's the light of Seth. Why doesn't it just say that? Why does it use this term, Benai ah Elohim, instead of just saying the, the sons of Seth begin to marry into the daughters of men? Oh, that's much easier. So um, I think we do that because we're uncomfortable with the other choices. Like, honestly, I'm like kind of uncomfortable with the other choices, like aliens, fallen angels, demons. I don't know. Yeah, that's easy. I don't always think easy is the best answer. So there's number three. Number four is it's these powerful kings that begin to collect for themselves these giant harems of women. And they start taking the peasant girls and just collecting them like property and starting to be like, all right, I've got more women than anybody else. Like, like they're porn empires or something. You know, we see the same kind of things today, the same thing that happens today, these similar kind of appetites by people. We've just renamed them, right? I'm a sexual addict. Really? The Bible just calls it lust and says it's a sin, right? And that you, you, there's a way to deal with that, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But, but we, we, we don't like that stuff. So here's where I'm at. Um, I believe personally, and I'm probably a minority opinion on this, but I believe they are demonized men. So I go hybrid on this. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that nice? It's political. So, but I'll tell you why. So, all right, here's why I say that. Um, I think Second Peter chapter two has to be taken very seriously. When he looks back and he says, they're angels, then I'm gonna be really careful about moving away from what Peter is saying under the inspiration of God's spirit. I have to take that real, real seriously, all right? And then what's amazing to me is if you look at ancient cultures, most of them have a flood story, like a flood narrative. There are 80 cultures that we know of in history that have a flood narrative, like, yeah, this great flood came and killed everybody. Like, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Now, why would that be? Well, because the sons, you know, that came out of Noah would have had a flood story and then they would have passed it down. And then the other thing that a lot of ancient cultures have is this. There was a time when the gods came down and had relations with humans. That's another very widespread idea. So you can find it in pyramids. There's paintings of that. The Aztecs have it in, you know, this hemisphere. The Greeks, right? They have all these stories of intrigue and they, they call them demigods. Demigods, Hercules was half God, half human, right? It was predominant in ancient history that there was this thing that happened, right? Jesus, if you know your history, almost became half God, half human. You know that? 327 AD, Council of Nicaea, this group called the Semi-Arianists who were massively popular, said, listen, when we're putting together what Jesus is, and that's what they were doing, um, 
to make him acceptable to this culture, this predominant culture that everybody has, these half gods, you know, let's make him a half god, let's make him a demigod. And so when the, when the council was writing up what Jesus is, they, they use this word homoousios, which means exactly like the father. That Jesus, Hebrews chapter one, Jesus is exactly like the father, they're the same. And so the semi-Arianist said, no, 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 no. Here's what you need to do. You need to put an I in there, an iota. Because if you put an iota in there, it changes the word from exactly to similar. And we'll take that. And that council responded by saying, no, we will not give you one iota. That's where that saying comes from. We will not turn Jesus from being God into this half thing. No, we're not doing that. So very important counsel. So Jesus almost becomes this because it was so widespread, all right? So you have these demonized men and the offspring, it says, are these Giborim. Um, and, and this used, word is used again. And it's always these kind of fighting men. And then it adds in this like intriguing thing, like the Nephilim were there too. And the Nephilim, the word most people believe it means fallen ones. The fallen ones were there as well. They show up again in the promised land. The fallen ones do, the Nephilim. And it almost becomes a term like, um, like that person is Amazonian. What would that mean? They're just big, right? They're these, like, like you know, it was, it was a race of women, the Amazonian women that were like really, really big women. So uh, does, it, is that, does anyone know that? Well, you do now. You can Google it. <laughs> so an Amazonian woman was, you know, just these massive kind of, there was this like, so it's like that. Like the Nephilim were these, these kind of creatures that you're like, what in the world is that? So it's a term used for them and they show up again. And that's a big story I don't want to get into. All right. So you have these, these I believe, demonized men that produce these Giborim that are just, it's like their kids are nuts. That's what it's saying here. Their offspring are nuts. It's not a kid with an overactive pituitary gland. They're bad, bad, bad people. Violent, warlike killers. So how did they become like that? Here's my thought on it. We know now enough about the development of a baby that things that happen in the womb have long-term implications on that child, right? Crack babies, Long-term implications of that. Heroin, long-term implications of that. Do you know the absolute worst thing for a baby in the womb? Alcohol. Fetal. So in the foster care parenting classes I took, they said the, the, the hardest kids long-term are those that have fetal alcohol syndrome. Now, alcohol was around at this time. So, so you begin to wonder this, this kind of, this demonized man thing. Was there some of this just happening that begins to create something? And even after kids are born, like if there's the wrong kind of environment for those kids, uh, read about the Romanian orphanages. It'll break your heart. Like they were closed down in 1989. And now they've still followed these children that, you know, for the last now 30 years, almost 27 years. And they followed these kids and it's heartbreaking how these kids just can't function correctly how they're broken, like they're, they're, they're just, they don't have empathy, they don't have emotions. And the reason why was this, the orphanages in Romania said this, all we need to raise good kids, feed them and water them. They didn't have love, 
They weren't spoken to. They weren't held. Like the, the, the things that are super important for kids to develop uh, attachment and all that, it didn't happen. And now to this day, these, these children they actually use them, or many does, as spies because they have no loyalty. Telling anybody. So, so it's almost like it broke them and it's heartbreaking. So, so you start kind of thinking about this, like stress hormones, when kids are, when their brain is developing, they're finding if there's too much stress on a kid, like there's these lines in the brain that are supposed to be thick, they thin down and they can't process emotions correctly. So, so they snap at things. They're over anxious. Things get set them off too quickly. And it's really, you have to really walk with a child out of some of those broken things. It's really heartbreaking. So you start wondering like, was, was there some kind of alliance, an ungodly to me alliance that happens between fallen angels and humans where there's these promises of something? I mean, we'll give you power, we'll give you sex, we'll give you this stuff, we'll make you this offer. And there's this unholy alliance. And you see hints of this throughout scripture. Saul, when he disobeys God and heads off in his own direction, 1 Samuel 16 says, a tormenting spirit was given to him and he is hell bent on killing somebody. Guess who it is? David. What is that? It's something bad. All right, you read Ezekiel 28 where it seems like he's talking about the king of Tyre. Like, wow, okay, the king of Tyre. And then it just shifts to this other thing. You're like, what in the world? Who is that? Well, I believe there's a real king of Tyre, but behind the real king of Tyre was this powerful demonic force, fallen angel that was inciting him and empowering him. I, I think the same thing happens in a Hitler. You can just go through history. Like they were, they're demonized men that have made an unholy allegiance. In the New Testament, you see the same thing. Peter, something happens to Peter. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says this. The Bible says this. Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Who was Jesus talking to? Was he talking to Peter or Satan? Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Who's he talking to? Peter or Satan? Yes. That's the only, yeah, both, I don't know. Yes, <laughs> right? There's something that happens there, but Judas is probably the best example because you have in Luke 22 and John 13, you have this, this that Judas had entertained these thoughts in his heart, that Satan had put this thing in Judas's heart, that it started with this kind of alliance that Judas had made with Satan. And then, end of Luke 22, end of John 13, it says that Satan enters into Judas. And the evil that follows is the worst evil ever. So there's this unholy alliance that happens. So that's what I believe happens at this time. And it gets really, really super broken. And I think today, there's a lot of things that are happening in our culture that are actually being inspired by very dark forces. When I look at the hypersexualization of our culture, I say, oh my goodness, there's something breaking now in the way that we're raising kids. And this is super scary to me. All right, pornography is the most hideous experiment we've ever done on kids. So seven-year-olds now are seeing graphic information that no other generation would ever have allowed their kids to see. And it's accessible to them. And the statistics are staggering on what the average seven-year-old has seen today. I mean, what's gonna happen to these kids? 
what are we producing now as a society? And it's just not, it's not just the pornography. It's games. I gave you those pictures, remember last year? I just show you the change in like My Little Pony, how they used to dress 10 years ago versus how they're dressing My Little Pony kids today. Or, you know, everything is moving to hypersexualization. So what's going to happen to kids? What about the drugs that they're getting, the hopelessness that's happening to kids? It's scary to me. What do we do? I'll be praying for your kids and be protecting your kids. So I, I told this to staff or to pastors. I said, the only phone I let my kids have is an iPhone. Not because I'm a snob, but because Apple is a snob. They lock down their stuff. They're very, very like, they're, they're, they're I don't want to use Nazis, but they're, they're, they're very like that about their stuff. You can't get third-party stuff on there. It has to go through iTunes, you know, unless you, unless you crack your phone or you jailbreak it. It's very, very solid device. Um, Androids are not that way. You can get all kinds of just crazy stuff on there. I use iPhones because I can lock out my kids. I take off the App Store. I immediately take off Safari. I lock their phones up. They can essentially talk on them and that's it. Because I know that little device is a portal for demons. And I'm not letting them come into my kid's house. I'm not letting them come into my house. I'm not letting it happen. I am very, very serious. And you can put a code in there that only you know. And so they can't get an app on there without coming to me. Dad, can I please get this app? And I make them write a paper and give me a speech on why they should have that app. I'm serious, man. I'm a Nazi. I don't, I'm really strict on this. Why? Because I see it and I know what happens to people. You pray and then you protect your kids because it's happening all around us. Be careful. All right. So that's my take. If you disagree, no problem. Everyone does. All right. So what does God do now? There's this, this brokenness. So what does God do? He does this. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. I think there are two things God does, and this is a massively debated text for a number of reasons. Spirit can be breath. Spirit can be wind. Spirit can be spirit, right? It's ruach. So, so there's that, the, the word contend or not abide in. If you have any kind of an annotated Bible, it will have a note like, we're not really sure what this word means, right? So there, there, it's, it's, a, it's another kind of, hmm. So here's what I think. God does two things. He does something with time. And this 120 years, it could be the time from here until the flood. That's very possible. Or it could be the future length of a person's life. I think it's probably both maybe but I really like it's the future length of people's lives. So time up to this point, chapter five was telling us over and over, look how long these people lived. Time was your ally. Man, you could waste a hundred years and what did it matter, right? People were cats, they had nine lives. I just wasted one life, no big deal. I've got eight more, I've got 800 years more, big deal. I squandered a hundred years. So what used to be the ally of people now becomes their enemy. You are going to be limited. You're not going to have as much time and then you're going to die. Can't you sense that even today? Like you age, you start to feel it. Your knee hurts, your leg hurts. Just starts, so you just kind of start feeling like this weight, like I'm going to die. And then it kind of stresses you out. Like I joke, I tailgate because I'm going to die. Like get out of my way, I'm dying. I got to move, hurry up. And it's in us like, oh, we got to go fast. So there's this, 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 what was once our ally now has become our enemy because we're all shortened on how much time we have. 
And then God also says something about, I believe, his spirit. And this word, you can do a word search on it. You can do whatever you want on it. Here's where I land. Uh, this word not abide, I believe, should actually be shield. I won't shield man anymore. He's flesh. I'm going to let his flesh now go the way of normal flesh. I'm not going to protect him like I did Cain. Remember in chapter 4, Cain kills a person. He's really worried about it. Curse of the earth. Is too much for me. What does God say? Don't worry, I'll put a mark on you and I'll protect you. So God has, protect, has been the protector of humanity now. And now God says, no more. I will no longer shield like I did to the Cains. I'm not gonna shield people that way anymore. And so I get this, I get this from Romans chapter one, where you see society degrading, Romans chapter one, verse 18, right? God's wrath is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Because right? men have exchanged the creator for created things. They've exchanged the, the natural passions a man is supposed to have for a woman for passions for men and women for women. And so three times it says this, God gave them up. God gave them up to lustful passions. God gave them up to broken, crazy hearted stuff. And then God finally gave them up to a debased mind. It's God saying, I'm not your protector anymore. I'm gonna let you feel the full effects of your sin. And it's gonna be the flood. I'm gonna allow the chaos that I had tamed in chapter one to now be re-released on you. I will no longer be your shield. Like, I wonder how, how stunned we'll be at how much God has protected us through our lives. Like, do we have any idea the shield that God has been for us? I watched this skit when I was 17 years old. It was Chevy Chase, Saturday Night Live, and he dies and goes to heaven. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. And he goes up there and he's talking and walking with his guardian angel, you know, just typical skit. And he's like, hey, tell me the worst thing I ever ate. And the guardian angel's like, no, 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 you cannot handle that. He's like, really, I can't? Well, tell me the 10th, no, you can't handle that. Well, what could I handle? Mm, the 742nd worst thing you ate. Oh, oh my, what was it? Remember at Aunt Shelley's, you were eating that burrito and you thought the beans tasted weird? Yeah, they weren't beans. They were earwigs. He's like, oh, right? He's like, okay, what's the biggest mistake I ever made? No, you can't handle that either. What? I can't, well, what, what biggest mistake can I handle? Mm, the 432nd worst mistake you made. Well, what was it? You were digging the sand with your son one time and you're, you're digging down and, and you hit that solid object and it shoved sand underneath your fingernails. You're like, ah, that hurts. I'm done. And your son's like, it's buried treasure, dad. Let's get it. And you're like, no, it's not. It was. <laughs> Billion dollars. You missed it. Ah, right? I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be like, what did you protect me from? You can't even handle it. You cannot handle all the things that I protected you from. God here, though, says to this group, okay. But he says to his people, read the Psalms, I'm your shield, I'm your fortress, run into me. So now we get, that's human depravity, we get God's response to this whole thing. Verse five. And Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Sunday, we looked at this. I'll be pretty brief. Um, God sees, number one. He notices. And the issue is what? Man's heart. It's chapter six of the Bible. The, the problem is your heart. Very, very early on in the Bible, we're told it's the heart. So we get the law of Moses, but even in the law of Moses, read Deuteronomy 30. What does Moses say? I've given you all this stuff, but it ain't gonna work. Why? You need a new heart. And that's why you have Ezekiel 36. The new covenant is I'm gonna take out your heart of stone and I'm gonna give you a brand new heart because it's been a heart problem all the way from Genesis chapter three. That's the problem. That in Genesis three, what happened was a snake bit onto the human heart and is constantly poisoning it and making us selfish and myopic and stupid and jerks. And Jesus says the only way that that can be fixed is heart surgery for me to give you a new heart. It's right here, chapter six, all right? Now, just think about this for one second. There are 7 billion people on earth. What percentage of those 7 billion would you say are really evil continually? I don't think it's that high, right? The majority of crime, if you talk to police, the majority of crime is actually committed by a very small percentage of people, like 4%, 3%. That's the problem. It's this small percentage. So let's say it's 5%. That's very, very high, probably less than that. 350 million people. And we see a ton of evil stuff happening all the time, right? In Britain today, evil, right? There's a ton of evil happening all the time. And it's by a very, very small percentage of people. Now flip that. Let's say only 5% are good people that are working hard and trying to do the right thing and all that kind of stuff. Not, not saying they're Christians or believers, but, but for the most part, just, but it's only 5%. And 95% of the world is bad. How about a society then? I don't think we even understand how bad it is in this time. I, I, we can't even understand it. God sees it and it grieves him, I said on Sunday, like a spouse that's had their husband leave them. It grieves him like that. Oh, when he sees what has happened. And so God in holy love acts to save creation. You guys are gonna destroy this thing. I must act. I have to save creation, right? We, we do the same thing on much smaller scales. Holy love does. Right? I've told you about Chris's arm when she broke it, right? I'll redo it. She broke her arm. We're in Ashland. I thought to myself, do I take her to the hospital in Ashland? Hmm, what will they do here? Will she, she get like gudugubu root? Uh, a hemp necklace? I mean, what, what are they gonna do here? Let's go to our VMC. So we pray for her. We get in the car, we drive to our VMC. While we're driving, Chris is saying, I do not want to go to the hospital. Daddy, they're gonna put a needle in me. I do not want to go to the hospital. Daddy, please do not take me to the hospital. Daddy, please turn around. Daddy, I don't wanna, can I just go home? Let's just go home. Let's keep driving, let's go home, Right? And then I'm like, no, no, we're going to the hospital, we're going to the hospital. And then she gets real quiet. And she said, daddy, daddy, Jesus healed me. <laughs> so I'm like, well, it's possible. <laughs> so I have to like adjust the mirror. And I'm like, no, your hand's still a Z, sorry. He will heal you, but you're not there yet. So we go to the hospital, she gets a big needle, she's crying, it's hard, ah, right? Now, mushy love would have done this. Oh, you're right. I'm just gonna take you home, give you some ice cream, give you some Tylenol, and we'll just, you know, I don't want you to hurt anymore. Holy Love says, no, 
No, we have to do what's necessary. A doctor deals with this all the time. Cancer, it's gonna make you really upset for me to tell you have cancer. And I'd really like to make your day, but if I did, you're gonna die. So I gotta take out the scalpel and deal with this. That's what God does with creation. I have to deal with this. Well then, Matt, why do the animals have to die too? Animals, God in Genesis 1 tied the destiny of animals to you and me. Do you know that? Where do you know that? Exxon Valdez, who suffered. It wasn't humans, it was animals. Their destiny has been tied to us. That's why Romans 8.22 says, all of creation groans and travails for the revealing of what we're supposed to be. Man, if you could fix them quick, God. That's what the lion says. Man, the penguin says, if you can get them straightened out, because they are just wrecking it down here. Their destiny has been tied to ours, right? So Noah alone finds favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Why does he find favor in the eyes of Yahweh? Well, verse nine, he says, generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Very close to what God says about Job. Noah walked with God. Did he earn his righteousness? Did he earn his blamelessness? I think he lived upright, but I think more than that, he walked with God. And in walking with God, Noah began to realize who God is, that he's generous, he's in control, he's good, he takes care of his kids, he's the only one that can rid this world of evil. And Noah says, man, I'm in. I am in with you. And we're supposed to contrast that now, looking back at verses one through four, this group of people that really said to God, no thanks. And they walked away from God. Now, why'd they do that? Because the world made them a better offer. These demons, these fallen angels made them a better offer. We'll give you sex and we'll give you power. You'll dominate. And they said, okay, we'll take that instead of God. I think a lot of people look like believers until the world makes them a better offer. And then they walk right away. Oh, I'll take that instead. Yeah. I think the church makes some big mistakes on this. I think the ark is the perfect metaphor for salvation, right? We'll see the ark. When they get in the ark, they are not allowed to bring any of their own possessions. It's like uh, uh, when we sent Neil Armstrong to the moon, right? He wasn't bringing his own stuff. It was limited. The ark was limited. It says they got on, they didn't take anything. They weren't bringing their, their memory foam mattresses. It was, it was for one purpose, not for comfort. This is for salvation. And too often, Christianity wants to present itself like, hey man, your best life now, man. Come on board. We'll get everything you want. Get out of jail for free. You'll get a job. You'll make millions. It's gonna be awesome. Well, that to me is selling snake oil. And when we do that, and the flood hits, the storm hits, what happens to that person? Dude, I'm out, man. I thought I got all this stuff for free, man. I thought Jesus was going to make me rich. I'm out. And then sometimes church propagates it by what I call the miracle guy testimony. And the guy that we prayed up here, and he's like, hey, man, for 24 years, I mainlined heroin. I drank a case a day. I made the gods of the Greeks look like absolute choir boys compared to my paganness. But two years to the day I got saved and have not failed every day to obey Jesus completely. I read my Bible. I pray. Jesus appears in my room. He tells me what to do. I do exactly what he tells me. 
And when he's done, he just like flies off the stage and we're like, oh man, I'm, I'm no good. Man, that does not exist. I don't know that person. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long walk of obedience. I'm a Christian, not because it's comfortable or it's easy or it's fun or it's cool or it's popular. I'm a Christian because this is the way to salvation and there is no other way. That's why I'm a Christian. And I'm not gonna tell people it's comfortable. Hey, you're gonna go against the flow now. Look what they did to Jesus. That may just happen to you. But this is the way. This is the ark that brings you to salvation. And Revelation says, there's a flood coming. There's another flood coming. And this one will be final. That's why I'm a Christian. I get in the ark because it's the truth. And I would say, if you're here and you do not know if you're a Christian, don't leave here without figuring it out. Get on the ark. Know this is the truth. It may not be popular. It may not be comfortable, but it's the truth. There is one name given under heaven that men and women may be saved by, and it's the name of Jesus Christ. That's our ark of salvation, and that's it. So Jesus, thank you for an intriguing text that we don't have all the answers to. But Lord, you have made the important thing so plain and clear. That we get to walk with you. We get to be blameless and righteous. We get to find favor in your eyes because of our ark, Jesus Christ. Because of the gift of eternal life. And I pray for any in here who have not yet placed their faith in the risen king of the universe, not yet had their sins forgiven and cleansed, I pray that today would be that day. I pray for those of us who know Jesus, I pray that we would walk after you. You commanded your disciples Follow me. We're supposed to walk after you. We're supposed to walk with you. So tomorrow morning, may we walk with you. May we hear from you. May we pray to you. May we praise you. May we know you better. May you speak to us, Lord, through scripture, through the saints, through creation, in the many ways that you speak. And may we be those, like Noah, that obey you. Sometimes in things that don't make sense, but we obey you because we trust you. So go with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.